Welcome to The Waitlist. I'm Alex. I'm a student trainee psychotherapist in the UK. According to MIND, there are 1.6 million people on the waiting list for mental health treatment with the NHS. A further 8 million can't get on the list because they're not deemed unwell enough. My aim for The Waitlist podcast is to explore different ways we can support our own mental health. I'll be interviewing people with a range of perspectives on mental well-being, including psychotherapy. If something piques your interest, I'd encourage you to do your own research. I'll be sharing resources in the show notes. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Dr. Mamataj is a chartered clinical psychologist and chief psychologist at Serena, which is an app that focuses on supporting people with general anxiety disorder and OCD. The Serena team described themselves as aspiring to be the world's most accessible, trusted and human mental health care app driven by the best technology and expertise. Part of the human expertise side is driven by Dr. Momotage's work. She's an associate fellow at the British Psychological Society and has 25 years experience, having worked mainly in the NHS and as a supervisor at Surrey's University postgraduate diploma in psychological interventions. She's also been running her own private practice, Dr. M Psychological Services, for almost 10 years. And as a clinical psychologist, she's been trained in a range of psychological approaches, but her main specialist is in cognitive behavioral therapy, also known as CBT. Charlotte also joins us. So if Dr. Momotage is the human expertise side of Serena, Charlotte is the innovation expertise alongside her mental health care education. Charlotte is head of partnerships and helped develop the Serena app. She brings with her an academic background in psychology, global mental health and international health care. Charlotte also practiced as a mental health worker, part-time for Rethink Mental Illness. In her role, Charlotte supports the team to bring mental health expertise into a digital setting. And in this episode, we'll explore themes of anxiety. Charlotte and Dr. Momotage, welcome to The Waitlist. Hi. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So as you know, um, I like to start the first question to really kind of chip away at the taboo around mental health. And the question that we always open with on the wait list is, how are you mad? So, Charlotte, I think I'll start with you. How are you mad? Well, I like to tell people that I enjoy cold water swimming, very cold water swimming, i.e. I like to see ice on those ponds. And people are always, will always tell me, okay, you're absolutely crazy. And I'm like, well, you know what, I think you need to do crazy things to help with your own mental health. So the reason why I cold water swim is because it actually helps with my own anxiety, um, chills me out, and there's a lot of science behind why it's really good for you. So, I mean, I am mad, and i got to do something mad to keep me a bit less mad. <laughs> keep it all balanced. Exactly. Love that, thank you. And Dr. Momotage, how are you mad? Um, um, I'm assuming you only want one example. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we're all kind of mad at some level and I think it's a good thing. I think Alan um, Alan de Botton talks about it in terms of meeting potential partners, mm-hmm. I think, and he says, I'm crazy like this, how are you crazy? So I suppose if you were to live with me, what you'd have to expect and get used to is my strong sense of smell, which <laughs> uh, it just seems to be getting more and more cute as I'm getting older and it does drive me and my family mad Um, and it's basically um, I don't know whether it's a blessing or a curse but I'll smell things long before anybody else does and then get frustrated because they're not smelling it Um, but later they find out I was right (laughs) and um, then you know I won't rest until I've worked out where it's coming from what's causing it what you know how to get rid of it and so on. So if the police run out of sniffer dogs, they know where to come. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the kind of founding story of Serena. So it was founded by Prasanna, who is is your colleague, and I had the pleasure of meeting him a couple of months ago. Um, And he kind of openly shares his story about moving to London to study from quite a modest background in India and kind of observing that he was striving so much for perfection that it was impacting his mental health. So 
he describes that as in the form of OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. Before we dive a little bit deeper into other ways Serena can help, can you share a little bit about OCD and kind of how that shows up, Dr. Mamatage? Mm-hmm. Okay, so obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, is a common mental health condition. I'm not sure if you want me to go into the demographics of it, but I can do later if you need me to. Yeah. Um, so it, if, in terms of demographics, then it affects men, women and children. And it's estimated that around um, 12 in every thousand people in the UK are affected by it. Mm -hmm. So that's almost 750,000 people in the UK. Um, And there are two key features to it. So the obsessive part of the name refers to unwanted and unpleasant thoughts, uh, images or urges that you can get um, repeatedly entering into your mind. And then they make you feel anxious or distressed or disgusted sometimes, or just generally uncomfortable. And the other part of the name, the compulsions, is what you engage in. So these are compulsions or rituals, which can be repetitive behaviours or mental acts like counting in your head. Um, And you do that in order to try and get rid of the thoughts, the unwanted thoughts, and make yourself feel better. But the problem is that that gives you a temporary relief, but it can cause longer problems, um, problems in the longer term. Um, because your compulsions then become a problem in themselves because you're repeatedly doing those things. Um, So you get into a vicious cycle and that interferes with your everyday life. Uh, Obsessions and compulsions can be focused on specific themes and we call them OCD subtypes. So a common uh, subtype would be, um, you know, worrying, having uh, contamination obsessions and then following that with cleaning um, compulsions that's what I think about when I think about OCD as mm-hmm. somebody that doesn't you know holding my hands up know too much about it from a yeah. clinical perspective in my head it's cleaning and and maybe like organizing mm-hmm. is what I've got in my mind kind yeah. of having things in their right place yeah so but that's one whole, example yeah. not not all of it yeah there's a whole range there's hoarding perfectionism is mm-hmm. this can be seen as a type of OCD um and um worrying about harm to people and then doing things because you think by doing that you're going to prevent the harm so there are lots of subtypes and you can have more than one subtype as well So I thought I might give a little picture of what OCD might look like for someone who's got contamination OCD, for example. So if you imagine if you've got contamination OCD, you're always worrying about things not being clean and maybe germs, which can then harm you, harm your children, harm, harm your family in some way, which then if you kind of follow that thought through can lead to quite drastic thoughts. Uh, So for example, if you put your bins out, uh, you know, and you probably normally wash your hands, but, um, you know, but the thing is with OCD, just washing your hands once wouldn't be enough. You get this nagging feeling that it's not quite clean. You haven't quite got rid of the germs. So what happens is you wash your hands again and again. And, and that can be a few times or it could be quite extreme. You know, mm-hmm. people are known to wash their ha- hands 100 times before they finally feel they can stop. So it's just you're constantly trying to reassure yourself, mm-hmm. but you never feel reassured. So then what that happens is that you you kind of get into this idea that actually you tell yourself that you need to keep washing in order to to make something clean. Um, And then that can have psychological problems as well as physical problems, because psychologically you're making yourself more and more anxious. But physically, for example, if you wash your hands a lot, you can have, you know, raw hands and, Mm -hmm. you know, cause all sorts of other damage to your hands as well. So um, if you imagine that and if you're doing that every day and in all sorts of areas in your life, you can imagine how exhausting life can be to live with OCD. Yeah, absolutely. And I can see how it might start as using your example, washing your hands Mm -hmm. twice after taking the bins out using that kind of sub theme. But then that can develop in a way and, and suddenly I've got a picture of someone looking around thinking, wow, how did I how did I get here? Um, that's really helpful. So it sounds like in terms of Prasanna's intention, it was to support other people experiencing similar symptoms to him. And I guess in both of yours involvement, Charlotte and Dr. Momotage, working to develop something like Serena in the digital space, there was a realization that that could apply to other things. So like generalized anxiety, And that's now a focus for the work 
that you guys are doing. Can you explain a little bit about what anxiety is? I think a lot of people listening will have an idea of what it means to them or a perception of what it is. But from your clinical perspective, can you explain Mm -hmm. that to us? Um, Well, if we start by saying, first of all, that we can all feel anxious um, from time to time, especially around times of stress. So it is a normal um, way of feeling and being. Um, But when you worry excessively, and so much so that interferes with your day-to-day functioning, that's when you might consider that you might have generalised anxiety disorder or GAD. Um, And it's another common mental health condition like OCD. Um, And again, if you wanted the demographics, it affects like one in every 25 people in the UK. Mm -hmm. And more women than men And it seems to be more common among the age group of about 35 to 55. And it can occur with other anxiety disorders as well. Um, And the thing about GAD is that it's about worrying about lots of things. So although we might normally worry about one or two things or something that's happening right now, when you have GAD, you tend to worry all the time. So that's what people say, that they kind of worry about everything all the time. And people who know you well might describe you as a bit of a worrier is quite common um and then so over the years i've treated people with gad who have worried about anything from being late embarrassing themselves becoming ill um you know the safety of their family um losing their job not being able to pay the bills losing their, all sorts of like everyday concerns um again that we can all have but it's when you just focus on it and then you can't stop control that mm. worry it, it's, it becomes GAD. And I think the most common thought that someone with GAD has is what if. Yeah, so it's what if such and such happens. And it's that kind of, that what if is what drives the condition because often you're asking what if about something that might never happen. So it's like a hypothetical concern or something that you can't actually ever have any control over. So most of us like to plan ahead and we like to have some idea of what's happening next. But we also accept that we can't always know what's happening next. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we tolerate the uncertainty. We live with the not knowing. But when you have GAD, you have what we call an intolerance of uncertainty. And you you get really anxious with the not knowing. So then what happens is that you um, try to plan as much as possible, create as much certainty as possible um, so that you, you to get rid of that feeling of anxiety that comes mm-hmm. with not knowing. Mm-hmm. But then that in itself becomes a problem because it becomes exhausting and it isn't always possible to do. So um, in terms of, and then so then you get into this vicious cycle again. Mm-hmm. And then that can also lead to physical problems like feeling restless, feeling tired, finding it hard to concentrate. You can get muscle tension as well, finding it hard to sleep. Mm-hmm. So that can have an impact on you physically too. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting because it sounds like there's almost some sim- like before you were talking, I was thinking of OCD and anxiety as quite separate because in my mind they bring different images of maybe different types of people or presenting issues. But it sounds like what I'm hearing is there's a similarity in the element of I want to say control, and I think that's sometimes an overused mm-hmm. word, but trying to be in charge or have some command of what's happening. Mm-hmm. So whether it's like the what if questions and organizing around that, or from an OCD perspective, the sense I'm getting is like trying to mitigate something that might happen with whatever behavior that is. Does it feel like there's some similarities from, from your professional perspective? It's interesting you say that because, yes, I think one of the th- um, things is that they can overlap and it can actually be hard sometimes to diagnose which which you've got. Mm-hmm. I've had situations where someone's come to me saying they've got OCD about such and such because, I don't know, they've read about it and they think they have it. And then we'll start off talking about that. And then a few sessions down the line, I'll realise that actually they're worrying about some this and that and that. And then realize well actually this might be GAD mm-hmm. yeah so there are similarities and so it's the same type of thing about trying like you say trying to contain things trying to manage that sense of things feeling out of control mm-hmm. so then mm-hmm. you do something to try and contain it try to you know catch 
catch it before it gets out of control. So thinking about some of those kind of symptoms of anxiety and like moving into GAD, when your clients come to you as a clinical psychologist, what are the types of things that you might start working with them on? So I suppose the word I want to say is coping mechanisms or tools, but maybe there are other things. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, I think, although you think you might have GAD, it's probably it's best to get a diagnosis because it, it just to kind of, because like we said, it can be hard to differentiate what it is that you're experiencing. So you'd get that from somebody who's qualified um, in, in psychological therapies. Um, and then uh, they would also then ask the right kind of questions, follow a certain criteria of questions. Uh, there's a manual for mental health conditions. So they'd look at that and, you know, make sure that that's what they're treating. Um, and then, so f- as a psychologist, the first thing I would do is the assessment. Yeah, so, you know, asking you about you know, what you're experiencing, what sort of situations you get anxious in, how does that anxiety manifest itself? Um, And then, you know, in terms of your thoughts, your behaviours, and then how that impacts on your mood, your relationships, on your work, um, to try and get a good picture Mm -hmm. of how your anxiety, how you are living with your anxiety. Because I guess Um, everyone's different. Like everyone experiences it in a different way and like you know, their living situation is different. And so that's going to show up at certain moments Mm -hmm. where for others it might not be the Mm -hmm. same. Mm -hmm. And you'd also, as part of the assessment, ask a little bit about your past history because there could be things that, that, you know, are related to Mm -hmm. past events, about your relationships and about stresses in the past and current ongoing stresses that you might have, mm. yeah? Um, And then what you do is, as a psychologist, what I, what I would do is then... Um, develop what I call a formulation so basically that's kind of a a kind of a way of explaining what we think is going on and um, and how things are linked and and then that's based on our kind of knowledge of what these conditions look like just kind of see then if you know if what the things you're experiencing fit in with what we know about GAD for example Um, and then we, we use that as the template for planning the treatment. And then in terms of treatment, um, you're asking what sort of things. So, you know, the best evidence-based kind of treatment for GAD is CBT. Um, And and that's nice recommended as well. So what we do is we look at how your thoughts and feelings and actions are interconnected, what kind of negative patterns you might have got into and, and what kind of vicious cycles you might have trapped yourself in. Um, and then we help you learn coping strategies in terms of managing the anxiety. And that can include not just psychological stuff, but also um, physical things like breathing exercises, relaxation exercises, mindfulness, meditation, all those kind of things as well. And then we also look at, because you're worrying about things, we look at what type of worries you have and whether some of them are actually more problems than just worries. So if there are actual worries about something that can be solved, we can look at problem solving strategies. So then rather than it being like a worry that overwhelms you, you turn it into a practical thing that you can look at, break it down into smaller parts and look at how you might solve it. So on the whole, what you're doing is you're practicing how to change the negative patterns you've got into to kind of make you feel better overall. Yeah. And it sounds like within that as well, the opportunity to uncover what might be going on with that person. I'm going to say inside their head, but mm-hmm. that, you know, just as a phrase, but also what might be going on in that person's life and, mm-hmm. and really looking at those two things. What I'm hearing is the opportunity sitting down with a professional like you to kind of set goals mm-hmm. to understand how can I move forward or how can I do this differently in terms of this pattern yeah. and hopefully that would bring some relief yeah I should have said so after you've done your formulation and you plan the treatment you, you kind of say what are your goals mm-hmm. and so what I often say to people when we're setting goals so there are therapy goals and then then there, there'll be practical goals um, so the therapy goals what I say to people to, in order to help them to think about what they want and so I say, what would things look like if they were better? What would things look like? So say we say we have three months of treatment, which is about 12 sessions. You know, what would you be able to do in, in 
three months that you're not able to do now? How would you feel in three months that you're not able to, you don't feel now? Because often people are so entrenched in it, they can't see <laughs> that. So it can actually be quite hard just setting goals as, as the starting point. Um, but you help people to try and remember when they weren't feeling like this, you know, how were things when you weren't like this in order to kind of think forward as to how things could be. Yeah, absolutely. I can kind of bring in some of my own experience and I will caveat to say I'm not GAD diagnosed, but my um, gut sense is that that's something that I've experienced in my um, in my own life. And a number of years ago, quite acutely, I would say, and the word that comes to mind is just such a feeling of like overwhelm and the thought of feeling that overwhelmed and then on my own setting goals on top of that would just feel impossible if I think back to, to where I was at that point. Um, so again, kind of working through and breaking it down into something that feels manageable and if it's three months or if it's six weeks or whatever, I can totally see the value in that. Mm. I want to kind of bring in the digital aspect now and Charlotte I'm kind of looking at you for this <laughs> as we think about GAD so generalized anxiety disorder how do we bring some of that treatment and template that Dr. Momotaj is, is talking about into a digital setting how does that work? Well that's exactly what I did so basically we took Momotaj's mind and all the experience <laughs> she has and digitized it. So essentially, the thing is, the way CBT works is, uh, it's, you know, it's a bit like a program, okay? And it helps you to break down your thoughts, to change your thinking patterns. It relies on working on a worry diary, writing down your worries, understanding your worries, and then basically using tools and exercises in yourself to alleviate those worries. And all these things can actually be put in an application, okay? So essentially what we did is we said, look, not everyone can go see Momotage because there's a wait list. <laughs> okay. You're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> Good um, and, or it's expensive, um, but we want to be able to give the opportunity for everyone to access this understanding and this knowledge. So you can do a few things on digital. You can also deliver psychoeducation. And when we say psychoeducation is essentially we explain what anxiety is, how it manifests, manifests in the mind, in the body. And we break it down in a really quite fun, fun UX design, uh, make it really clear. And you can do a lot with technology. You can um, add audio. So if you don't want to read, you can listen. You can do speech to text. So if you don't want to type, you can type out how you're feeling. And it's the, the app itself, see, you can see it as it's, your, it's a program, okay? It's your, own, it's your own digital therapist. Essentially, it's a therapist in your pocket and it guides you um, to, to, to break down your worries so that they're no longer a burden on mm -hmm, you. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good overview. And I suppose particularly with anxiety, what's coming to my mind is kind of what I was saying before in my own experience around it feeling quite overwhelming, having something where you don't have to leave the front door if you don't want to, you know, seeing someone in person can feel like a challenge. Having something digital, I can see how that would be really helpful. Um, have you got any examples you can share that from kind of existing customers or from the research that you've been doing? Like, how are people experiencing that digital version of CBT? I mean, exactly like like you said, you, you know, you, it, you can access it anywhere, anytime. And this is a lot of what like our users are saying. I love the fact that I bring out my application and it's just there and it knows exactly what I need to do. Um, and it's very caring space, the language we used. Um, and it has everything I can possibly need. These, these are like the words that a user would use. That has used, It has everything I can possibly need to basically focus, focus on my worries and just get rid of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And in terms of, so we've obviously we've done some studies, we've done some small scale studies and we have a randomized control trial coming up. So that's a much larger study and RCTs, um, they're very rigorous and you'll have at least like a hundred people on that. Um, but from the small scale studies, we found that in only two months, 50% of people have a reduction in anxiety. Um, and, you know, two months is a short amount of time with CBT. You sort of need to practice it more and more. It's a practicing therapy um, to alleviate your anxiety. So I think I've, I also work with university students and it's quite interesting. Um, the way the app works, the outcome, it, it, you know, how, how people interact with and their experience with it is very different. So one university student um, who... Um, suffers with ADHD um you know instead of she said to me look every night I'd usually just like be on Instagram and I'd be like scrolling on Instagram to try and like block out my thoughts and my worries but instead I used Serena and it was great because actually it just got me to write them all down dump all my worries onto the app and then I could just sleep instead of wasting hours on Instagram and I think and I think that's a thing because it's so accessible like you can do the work there and then, and you don't need to stress and worry about finding a therapist. Um, because also therapy, ther finding the right therapist in itself takes time and you might be losing a lot of money trying to find all these different kinds of therapies. And like Momotage was saying, why CBT? CBT is the gold standard. It is what NICE guidelines use. It's what NHS use as the basically the most evidence-backed Th therapy that helps with anxiety and depression and OCD. So that's that's really the goal here is we want to bring that knowledge to as many people as possible. Um, and a lot of this stuff, you know, like obviously it, it's great to have someone there and, and to support you. So we're leveraging as much technology as possible. Um, we're working on an avatar to bring that more humanistic approach because obviously you can't ever, you can't get rid of the, th like, you know, like this is not gonna beat the therapist and it's always nice to have someone there. So we're trying to humanize the experience as much as possible. So we, we're, we're building an AI avatar who's there, he'll talk to you, um, you'll be able to have conversations with. And we're hoping through that, the experience will be even more engaging. And research, research shows that the more engaging a digital intervention is, the better the clinical outcomes. Um, and CBT, digital CBT, like the, there's, there's quite a lot of research to say that is, it is as good as face-to-face as -face CBT therapy for some people. I think it would be great to share if you're open to doing it. Like, what are some of the exercises that m somebody might start with? You mentioned Worry Diary and a couple of other things. Like, whether they're using an app or a notebook or whatever, I, I think it might be interesting to share, like, what are some of the things that you can do if, if you're feeling anxious as opposed to necessarily having a, a diagnosis? So um, there's something called attention training technique. Um, so where you basically you bring your attention off the worry and onto your five senses. So if you're in a position where you're feeling a bit panicky or quite anxious, it's it's somewhat like a mindfulness technique. So you need to focus on your five senses. So what can you see? Mm -hmm. What can you hear? What can you taste? What can you smell? And just going through that and being very mindful of the surroundings and self. So you're taking the focus off that worry and back to self. Same way with the breathing technique. So in the app, we have these breathing visualizations. So, you know, inhale out, inhale in, slow breathing. So slow breathing helps with the physical symptoms of anxiety. So that heart rate will slow down the heart rate. These are really simple techniques that you mm -hmm. can just do for yourself. Um, especially if you're like feeling a bit panicky, first thing to do is to just slow down that breathing. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then it's it's really cool because obviously, you know, when I was working with Momotage developing this, she did it session by session. So it goes from, you know, the first sessions and like you know, they're quite easy. And as you go on, it becomes the more, when not complex, but like more deeper mm -hmm. sort of exercises. Mm -hmm. So in session six, we sort of do behavioral experiments. So it's a way of which that you can, we, we get you to understand your safety behaviors. So when you have anxiety, um, you might have a safety behavior. So let's say if you got to go give a speech, your safety behavior is the night before like you're getting no sleep because you're so anxious about it. You're literally rehearsing it all night long. So your safety behavior is that re night before rehearsal. So we ask you to, okay, remove that safe be safety behavior and try and try and just deliver, deliver the speech without it and then test yourself and see how it goes. Mm -hmm. So we have these, like we developed in the program so you can see like if you test your beliefs, how then it started to reduce your anxiety and if your anxiety has changed. So those are more like harder things to do, but you do that towards the end of the, mm. towards the end of the app. So it starts off more, more simplistically. Mm -hmm. um, so it sounds like the kind of in the moment tips that we might be able to share are breathing is a signal to your body and mm -hmm. maybe your brain i'm kind of looking at dr momachard here <laughs> to like nod at me or not um to your body or brain to say it's okay and that can help bring your heart rate down and 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 that's good it also sounds like in the moment um a technique can be to acknowledge those five senses and taking your thoughts to those five senses again can be a bit of a, a grounding exercise yeah so thank you for sharing that these are great tips it also sounds like there are other ways, and I might come back to Dr. Momotage here, on ways we can support our own anxiety with kind of quote-unquote tools, but those tools might go beyond the sort of in-the-moment, I guess, heightened anxiety. I don't know if that's the right term. And Charlotte mentioned kind of a safety did you say safety technique or a safety behavior? Yeah. Acknowledging that, thinking about, okay, well, if that's a cycle that I can now see, how can I do it differently? What other ways can we kind of support our anxiety-like feelings is what I'm going to say rather than GAD in that more sort of longer term bucket? Yeah. So the safety behaviors and behavioral experiments are what you do to once you've recognized these are things that you're doing and that's keeping the anxiety going. So safety behaviors feel safe to an extent. That's why we call them the safety seeking behaviors. But then, like we said earlier, they cause problems longer term. So that's why when we do behavioral experiments, we try to find ways of finding ways to do what we need to do without the safety behaviors, but still manage the anxiety. And the reason we do breathing exercises and relaxation, physical exercises, is because when you're anxious, if you think about it, when you're anxious, what's the first thing you notice? I'm like breathing shallow or my heart's going. Yeah, or... all the physical stuff, mm. yeah? So anxiety is made up of the mental things that are going on in your head as well as physical sensations. And we tend to notice the physical things first. So we notice our heart, we notice we might feel sweaty and hot and flushed and all the rest of it. So that's why you start off with trying to manage the physical sensations. Because if you do then that's that part of that vicious cycle that you're breaking. Is if it, because what happens is you re, when you get the physical sensations, you tend to read that and you do what we call ca catastrophizing. So you read into that and you think, oh my God, I'm going to have a heart attack. Oh my God, I'm going to faint because you're feeling all these things. So if you can reduce that, you're already then cutting that, mm -hmm. the thought process that goes into the catastrophizing. And then you can look at your thinking and see if there's anything you can do with, you know, what we call rational thinking to try and change the way you think. So that's that cycle you're breaking in diff different ways. Um, you were saying about how to manage anxiety in general. Um, yeah, I think the thing is, it's not just about being in the therapist room and, you know, doing these exercises that your therapist suggests. It's about everyday things as well. So like, you know, looking at your alcohol intake, for example, looking at your sleep patterns, um, looking at whether you're getting enough exercise, going for walks, all these things will help because all these things feed into how we feel in ourselves. 
So if we feel good in ourselves, we, we're in a better position to manage those unwanted thoughts that come up. But if we're already feeling, you know, beaten, it's hard then to have that strength to, to fight off the unwanted thoughts and urges and things that you might get. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I know that when... So I feel like I'm sharing like lots of personal stuff on this episode, <laughs> but you know, go with it, whatever. Um, when I notice that I'm feeling more anxious than usual, often, but not always, it's like I would describe it, and I must admit I talk about it like this with my therapist, it's like my defenses are down. So it might be that I've like, just been recovering from flu or like it might be that I've had a mega busy week and so I'm kind of all over the place and yeah I talk about it in therapy it's like my defenses are down and therefore this is feeling more difficult than usual and then also I'm experiencing these symptoms of anxiety as well um that's super helpful thank you I want to come back a little bit to the digital side of things so um, Charlotte, you mentioned the, um, you know, one of the many people that you were speaking to in the research saying like, well, if I'm on the app or if I'm focused on journaling or whatever it is, I'm not on social media. I'm interested, Dr. Memetage, on what can we observe, like with your expertise in the field, like what's happening to our brains on social media when it comes to elevating our anxiety and I know that's a big question <laughs> and I'm putting you on the spot <laughs> yes I was going to say that's a whole other <laughs> podcast I think um I yeah there's all sorts of anxieties that come from that the I mean the first thing I'm thinking of is what people actually share on social media we always share the best bits don't we you know something nice that you did went to a nice restaurant had a party or holidays and then what can happen often is that you see that and you, you can see somebody else's Facebook or Instagram, whatever, and then it looks like they're having a wonderful time all the time. And then if you're already feeling a bit low, it, that can make you feel you're missing out, you, you know, something's wrong with your life. And so, so that comparison kind of thing happens. In CBT, there's a phrase we use, compare and despair. And, and I think that sort of happens quite a bit with social media and especially with young people. I think it is a big issue with young people and mental health, uh, you know, seeing what's happening on social media. And then there's also, you know, you can get into all sorts of things. I've seen people get into arguments on comments and things like that. So yeah, there's a whole range of things. It's a whole plethora of <laughs> problems that can arise yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, there are good things about it as well in terms of sharing and and sharing with people who you know geographically you might never share with or learning things from people and so on. But there are also a lot of uh, it is a bit of a minefield when it comes to mental health as well. Yeah, absolutely. I really not like is not the right word, but that phrase compare and despair really resonates with me. And I'm not really on social media that much because. I feel like that's kind of what I was doing and I'd made a decision to kind of remove it from my phone and stuff quite a few years ago and I must say I don't miss it. I did in the beginning and I became weirdly like fascinated by the news because I kept opening all these different news apps because my thumb was just searching for something to open on my phone and in the absence of it being a social media app, for whatever reason, maybe I'm a bit of a dork, I ended up kind of becoming very knowledgeable about, about the news. And then that gradually faded away. And I feel like I have quite a lot of space from that sort of stuff. Um, but it also makes me feel like I miss out on quite a lot of things. I feel like I'm not really in the zeitgeist if it were like I'm, I kind of miss out on trends and what's on tv and all that jazz um so I totally get it but the compare and despair really resonates with me yeah. you're really not missing out on anything Alex <laughs> I think for me I, I just think it's the biggest time waster because it's just the feed, like they feed you what you want to see yeah. I'll be spending hours looking at someone surf a wave because I love surfing Okay, and that's just... I, I definitely read a lot less because of hmm. seeing, having a phone and going scrolling through. That time I could have spent reading something. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, like reading something like a book rather yeah, yeah. than reading other people's <laughs> stuff. And the news is an issue as well. I've seen, especially if you're someone who's a bit of a worrier hmm. and then seeing the news all the time and disasters and things like that, I've often prescribed coming off social media for people when they get to that kind of stage of worrying. Wow, that's amazing. And mm. that that includes like coming off socials and coming away from mm. kind of 24-7 yeah. news. Yeah, that's interesting. All right. So we mentioned at the top of this episode that mental health can still feel like a taboo topic. And I think as part of that taboo and what we talk about often on this podcast is having better and more meaningful conversations with each other. So I'm not talking in a professional capacity for you guys, but like in our daily lives, are there any tips that you can share that can enable that conversation to happen a bit more easily? So say, for example, we might be worried about someone's anxiety and maybe we're noticing things at home that have dialed up a little bit and perhaps we haven't we haven't found the courage to have a conversation yet. Um, yeah, I think the thing is, it's I suppose it really depends on what your relationship is with the person that you're concerned about. If it's someone you know well or it's a family member, you probably already have an idea of what's going on in their life. So then you might be more com comfortable to ask specifically about something. Um, so, and then you can ask them, you can even, you might even feel comfortable to say, oh, you're looking a bit tired or you're sleeping okay, you know what's happening. Um, for example, if it's my kids and I would ask about their friends a little bit, you know, what's going on with so-and-so. So start off in a gentle way, in a chit-chat kind of way just as a being curious and then gently if you can approach a bit more about you know what's happening how how are things going with you and so on i think if it's someone who you're not so close with it, it it's a little bit harder but it's still about starting a conversation so you know you you, you might be a bit more gen general in how you start that so i don't know the weather's always a good topic isn't it or <laughs> some topical in, in, issue in england in sure england, yes <laughs> um, some topical issue or if it's about work you, you can ask you know in a general way and then be a bit more tentative about you know asking is everything okay um i think in the old days when you had office work it, it was it was easier in a way you might just quietly go for a cup of tea in the in the staff kitchen or something and, and start chatting um but with online but i think even with online i i find um what i tend to do sometimes is hang on a call a bit longer with someone if i see and that's happened a few times with us in serena <laughs> serena because we you know if i see someone looks like they'd like a chat I will hang on a bit, you know, after everyone's gone and have a little chat with them, or I might arrange a separate chat. Mm -hmm. um, if you can get together geographically, you can do that too. So uh, what I would say is it's about just starting with general conversation, try and pick up on their mood. And so my tips would be about noticing people, yeah, noticing how they are. And that's actually seems so simple, but it can be really hard when you're working in a stressful environment. Busy you lives. tend to be caught up in your own stuff. <laughs> and you haven't got time for anybody else but we we should try to notice each other I think and then kind of like taking a moment to ask and I think most people appreciate being asked how things are going yeah whether it was about deep stuff or not just ask them how things are going and then give them space to talk you know and giving people spaces so when you give people space to talk you know don't interrupt don't ask like lots of questions one after the other just Give that space and let it flow. Um, and then you can also share about yourself. Because I think that's the thing. If you say something about yourself, they're likely to say something about themselves too. And what happens is that you gradually build up a relationship where then you will notice more often you can ask, ask more. So I, I would say the main thing is about connection, communication, really, whether it's personal family relationships or, you know, a bit more distant relationships as well. That's great. I remember um, as you were talking there about kind of online relationships, it's a great tip, like hanging back at the end of a call. I used to work with um, Vicky, Vicky, if you're listening, hello, um, in my kind of TEDx role. And we 
spoke to each other like fairly ad hoc, I would say. And often it was because we needed to plan something or it was like a doing call is what I would describe it as when Mm -hmm. Vicky and I spoke on the phone. And she did something which is brilliant. And I must tell her this because I don't think I have, but I loved it where she'd be like, how are you? And I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then she'd be like, is that what we're doing? Like, how are you? And she would ask me again and and she would inevitably get a different answer. Um, so there's something about that. Just the noticing, of, isn't that? Yeah, exactly. Giving the space. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, Charlotte, I'm wondering kind of as you think about your world and with people that you might notice are kind of like, how, how are they doing? Like, what tips can you share? Um, well, I think for me, like, there's a lot to be said in physical cues. I mean, you can tell when someone's having a great day, right? And you can tell when someone's having not such a great day. Like the body shows you a lot in in how someone's doing. Um, Because like, you know, we do a lot of, hey, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Like that's just our, everyone's like normal rhetoric. Like we, I think, I think we need to stop listening so much to words. And sometimes actually, like you were saying, Momotosh, like actually observe what's, what's going on. Um, So that's, that's usually, that's always like sort of, sort of been, um, you know, like my approach and also like at Serena, we, we also deliver workshops and, 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 and we work with, with, with organizations and we'll maybe do like, you know, s- small sort of workshops and groups. And when you facilitate stuff like that, you need to be like aware of, of, of how people are, um, you know, maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's people that are probably a bit more quiet, you know? Um, so just, there is a bit of like an intuition to it as well. Um, obviously, because I used to be a mental health worker, I spent a lot of time with people who were who were suffering. So maybe, maybe I I got attuned to to what to what suffering might might perhaps look like. Um, and really, I think the most important thing when someone isn't feeling well is you're offering them a space to vent. A bit like with our Serena app, we're offering a space to vent. And like Momotaj was saying, all you need to actually do is listen. When I was a mental health worker, I'm, I'm, I'm not a trained therapist or anything, but just being able to listen to what someone is going through, that is a huge deal for them. And that really, really helps. And actually when you're in therapy, for those of you who are in therapy, you will know that most of the time your therapist is just listening to you. <laughs> so, um, and I think, you know, I think maybe some people feel like they don't want to intrude on someone's life or they don't know really how to navigate that more like personal stuff. Um, and. My, I like I don't know when I speak to people I'm like very like hands are open I'm like smiling and I'm like I don't know like I, I I bring an energy of like of a space where all I'm thinking about is I'm, I'm not thinking about myself my words like all I'm thinking about is you and like they can sense that I deeply care and like I'm not there to like I don't know like listen to gossip or anything I don't know what but like the point being is my real f- focus is 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 that person's well-being um and it's 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 like in a working environment i think it's really hard to work like check in on your own emotions because i think work is stressful and your emotions can go up and down and to be aware of others emotions but but i think what i like for me personally um what i found is you know, people check in on check in on me, and I check in on them. And you know, even if I'm not feeling great, if I see someone as well that's not feeling great, I immediately like focus on on that person. Like, and in some ways, that also helps me in my own process um, as well to know that actually it's not just me who's having a bit of a bit of you know bit of an, an emotional you know unstable emotion. Um, because after all, like emotions are fleeting thought, like emotions are, you know, they're not always going to stay the same. Like they're always in movement. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And your thoughts 
and I guess this comes from maybe more of a meditation space, but I don't know, like your thoughts aren't who you are. They're just part of your experience at that moment. Exactly, mm. exactly. But it's really good to get them out before you start, as Montmartre says, catastrophizing over them. <laughs> and I think I think a lot of people do catastrophize because just, just you know, have your rant, get it out over a cup of tea, ah, you know, that's good. It's healthy. It's cathartic. Yeah. Everyone should be do like, same with exercise. Like, you know, moving the body is the same thing. Get mm -hmm. it out your body. Get mm -hmm. it out your mind. Mm -hmm. um, go swim in freezing cold water if that's what it takes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that does sound good. <laughs> so I think that moves us nicely on. And I'm going to look at Dr. Mamatage here to if you are somebody listening who feels like, hmm, what you're saying about anxiety is actually really resonating with me. Is that what it, that is? What tips can you share for people to kind of support themselves um, in the first instance? So maybe this is that kind of step one bucket rather than going deeper. Um, well, I think the first thing to remember is that mental health problems are common and they're more common than people think. And, you know, it can affect anyone at any time. So to normalize it in that sense. Um, and then I would say the first step is to start by sharing. So share, talk to someone who's close to you, uh, whether that's a partner or a family member, you know, a close friend. If it's work related or affecting your work and you feel you can talk to a colleague or manager, that would probably be helpful too, because it might mean that you need to reduce your work or change your deadlines or whatever to make things easier. Um, and then I think the other thing is that you we talk about sharing, but sometimes you might find that people find it hard to understand if they haven't been through it themselves. So I think the best thing is to just be as honest as you can and give them a picture of what it's like for you. Yeah, because that you can't expect everyone to always understand. So give them a picture, tell them what it's really like day to day having these anxieties and how it affects you. Um, and I think what you'll find is that when you open up, you'll instantly feel a sense of relief. Is that share you know problem shared problem halved kind of idea um and then i think we also tend to think that people are going to judge us if we say we're, we're struggling we we do all fear that you know especially if it's work related i think um but i think what you find is that most people are quite compassionate and you know do want to help so if you take that with you you know when you when you get that judging critical thought in your head um and then of course you know your gp is always your first port of call so you go to your GP and then they will um, usually refer you to to um, what's called an IAPT service. So it's Improving Access to Psychological Therapies and all areas have them. And they're usually what, the primary care level, the first level of getting psychological help. And they tend to assess you probably over the phone at the beginning. They do what we call a triage assessment. And then they decide which channel of treatment you might have whether that's like in a group or one-to-one, -one, you'll get offered those And this is things. like talking therapy. Talking therapies, yeah. yeah. And if, of course, if you do need medication, sometimes people need medication, then your GP is also the one who will mm -hmm. will talk to you about that. And you can have therapy and medication. But usually I would say medication is seen as a short-term thing. And then the therapies are... So, cause, because sometimes people's anxiety can be so severe that actually they can't go straight into the talking therapy they need something to settle them so that they can do the talking therapy. Um, but the idea is that the strategies that you learn in the psychological therapies are the longer term strategies that then you keep using. Um, They're finding the kind of root of it so we can solve the root of it yeah. rather than necessarily helping with the symptoms, I yeah, guess. Exactly. So learning how to cope. Because the thing is, you may reduce your anxiety, but they can come back too. So we all go through peaks and troughs in our mood levels and our anxiety levels. So if you're someone who's prone to anxiety, it's about learning what techniques work for you so that you can use them when they come up. And again, that's this is where Serena is really helpful. <laughs> Plug for Serena. <laughs> in, that, in that, you know, the idea is even if you had therapy with someone, you could you know, one-to-one -one therapy with with, uh, with a therapist, you could use Serena as a way of maintaining those skills and those yeah, strategies. The accountability, self-support. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. I'm going to move on to my final question for you both, but Charlotte, I'll come to you first, which is 
what's the one thing that you've learned kind of in your own personal journey but also your journey um in the in the mental health space that you didn't know before but that you want to share with others now yeah so you know this podcast we talked a lot about anxiety and really what anxiety is is you neglecting the moment you're not focused on the moment you're not living the power there's a book called the power of now by Eckhart Tolle go check it out but you're not you're not um you're not focused on the now and all you have is the now okay your past your future absolutely means nothing that is not your life your life is every second and with anxiety really is we completely lose ourselves in the past and we lose ourselves in an in, in uncertain future that we have no idea about. And if you were, if you're able to, and this is why, you know, they, they talk about, about mindfulness and meditation being really good. And we do have guided meditation in the Serena app to help you, you know, be focused on the present. If you are able to focus on the present, you'll see that anxiety just flows out because you're so like engrossed in what's going on. Like maybe maybe you're going on a walk and you're able to really like notice the nature around you or you're in your work and you're really, you're, you're in what's called deep work. You're really feeling fulfilled in, in, in what your mind is able to do and think. There's a richness to life when you're able to be focused in the moment. And I'm really trying to practice that a lot more. Um, and I think if people were able, like, you know, if more people were able to do that, I, I generally think they'd be a lot happier and they wouldn't feel their life wasted. That's very profound, almost mm -hmm. like philosophical. And I will put the power of now in the show notes if anyone wants to check it out, because I agree it's great. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you the same question, Dr. Momotaj, before we close. Yeah, well, I totally agree with Charlotte about noticing the moment and the power of now. Um, I was thinking, uh, because you asked about personal, I grew up in a family where we never really talked much about feelings and uh, just assumed you just get on with it. And that's not even British. That's just <laughs> my family. Um, uh, but what, what I noticed is that when you didn't look well, people were quite direct about you know, are you okay? What's wrong with you kind of thing. So that idea of talking about mental health. And so I think what I've learned is actually more than one, if I can say two or three things. Yeah, please. Um, so firstly, the importance of honest self-reflection. And I use that phrase a lot in my personal life, in professional life and so on. And what I mean is that I think too often we're in self-denial and we kind of just allow things to build and fester away and don't admit even to ourselves, never mind to other people what's really going on with us. So honest self-reflection is one. And then the second, I would say, is the power of sharing. So we've talked a lot about sharing. And I don't mean like telling everybody everything you feel uh, or think, but at least having one person that you can open up to, you know, and really say how things are. So personally for me, um, a lot of the people that I'm close to are psychologists, psychotherapists and counsellors. Lucky so you. <laughs> there is no hiding. <laughs> what I mean is that we kind of don't bother with the I'm all right kind of thing. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with me. Things are right. We don't pretend. You just go straight to the point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Own it. How are you going to deal with it? <laughs> Take responsibility, all that kind of thing. So actually, that, and I think maybe more relationships should be like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then finally, for me, uh, talking about Charlotte's kind of philosophical and for me, gratitude has always been the thing that kind of grounds me, you know, noticing what I do have rather than what I don't have, what's going well rather than what's not going well, because we do have a propensity to look at the negative. I think that's just how we are as humans. So practicing this idea of noticing what's going okay. And I mean little things as well. They don't have to be profound things. So I often tell people in therapy to give them a little exercise that they can do, mm. which is like notice three things at the end of the day so you, you can do it on your own or if you're in your family you can do it with people in your family maybe after dinner or something mm -hmm. and just sit down and say three things that I'm grateful for today 
and they can be three little things, you know, like the sun shone today, mm-hmm. you know, if it's a nice crisp winter's day, like yes, I think a couple of days ago, it was beautiful, wasn't it, yeah, with the winter gorgeous. wonderland yeah. kind of looks, um, something like that, or, you know, I expected something to go wrong and it actually didn't, and, yeah. you know, noticing, enjoying a coffee, yeah, or, enjoying a coffee, yeah. so, because if we notice these little things, we get into that mindset, mm-hmm. we're a little bit more positive about things, mm-hmm. rather than what we naturally tend to do. It's funny because we never comment when things go well, do we? We always say yeah. what was what was wrong. <laughs> yeah, of course. So to me, I think that's really powerful. Yeah, so, and yeah. it being a practice as well, and then yeah. a practice becomes a habit. And exactly. Then a habit yeah. becomes, you, you do you know, need to practice it. That's why if you do the three three things I'm grateful for every day, can, you can turn it into a practice, and then it'll become more automatic. Amazing. Thank you so much. So many good tips in here. Um, thank you so much for both coming in. Really appreciate it. 